before we uh, jump into our sermon today, uh, I want us to take some time as a church to pray for Patrick Ray. Uh, if you are a first-time guest or maybe new to Riverwood, uh, we've been supporting Patrick financially and prayerfully for about the last four or five years. Uh, Patrick and his wife Shelby have been living in the uh, North Minneapolis neighborhood of the Twin Cities. Uh, very diverse uh, racially uh, a group, uh, a neighborhood, and uh, recently it's turned very violent, especially in the wake of the uh, George Floyd incident that happened just a few blocks away from where they live. Um, the reason I want us to pray today is uh, about 10 days ago, Patrick was leading a Bible study for kids in their backyard when uh, gunshots went off right there in the neighborhood. Um, gunshots have been going off all the time, but to have it happen while they're right outside, um, it's, it's just really rattled the neighborhood. And then uh, three or four days ago, um, a couple was sitting in a car and they were uh, gunned down. Uh, he sent out a photo and, and the car is just riddled with bullets. Uh, it's, it's absolutely horrible. And uh, that really rattled them too because that's where they went to gas up their car. It's where they shopped. There was a park nearby. They felt like it, the park was far enough away from their neighborhood that that was safe. And now to have that happen just five minutes from their house uh, just really has them on edge. Um, and yet in the midst of it, God is at work. Uh, this morning at Northside Neighborhood Church, uh, they are baptizing three people. Um, their church just ever so slowly begins to, to continue to, to grow. Uh, just uh, this past week, uh, Patrick had this phenomenal conversation with this 18-year-old who's just really curious and interested spiritually. Um, so God is at work. And yet there's just all this terror, violence happening around them. Um, and so I just thought, you know, since we are partnering with them, I don't want us just to be that kind of church that just sends money and forgets about them. I want us to be in this with them. So I want us to join them in prayer. So before we get going on our stuff, let's just take some time to pray for Patrick and Shelby and Northside Neighborhood Church. So Heavenly Father, um, we uh, join right now in, in prayer together for our brothers and sisters in Christ at Northside Neighborhood Church in North Minneapolis. We pray specifically for Patrick and Shelby that uh, you would help them to lead in such a way that they would represent the peace that surpasses understanding, that they would represent the Prince of Peace in their church family, in their neighborhood as they interact with people. I know Patrick feels really, really rattled inside. He is, he's on the edge of fear. And, and he's, he's not wanting to let his wife and her daughter go out, won't let them go do things for fear that what just happened here recently might happen to his family. Lord, I pray that you would help Patrick and Shelby to not live in fear, that they would trust you, their sovereign God. I pray that that would happen for Northside Neighborhood Church, that this would be a church that would still seek to go into the neighborhood despite the, the, the risks and the violence. Because Jesus, you came to us into the sin-stained world. And so would you help the believers there to go, to, to represent Christ and to show your love. But God, with that, we pray for their safety. Please protect them. Protect them physically, protect them emotionally, and protect them spiritually. And may that protection be, be sensed in your spirit. May that protection come as they are together. May that protection come as they spend time in your word or in prayer or in conversation. May they just have regular reminders from you that you are with them, you are for them, and you will do exactly what needs to be done so that your will is done there in, on earth just as it is in heaven. So Lord, we, we uh, look forward to hearing a report 
of, of the ways you are working. We thank you for these three lives that are uh, going public in their faith in you. We thank you for the conversations that are being had. We thank you for the people who are serving uh, Northside Neighborhood Church and loving the community well. But God, we pray that as they seek to, to bring your gospel to the people there, that you would bring your peace that surpasses understanding. So God, thank you that we get to partner with them. Uh, thank you for the joy that they bring to us. And I pray that we could be some of that to them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we find ourselves today in the fifth week of a six-week series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we've been going through a capital campaign seeking to raise funds in order to purchase this building or trying to raise the down payment. And uh, as part of that, we've been studying Nehemiah. Last week, we are in Nehemiah chapter 4, and we saw some of these outside distractions that came in trying to halt the work of the rebuilding of the walls and then talked about the outside distractions that sometimes come into our lives. In the book of Nehemiah, what we saw were a couple of governors by the name of Sanballat and Tobiah. They, they were seeking to interrupt the work because if the walls got built around Jerusalem, they would lose some power. They would lose some influence. They, they couldn't just raid the city and take whatever they wanted. And so they were totally opposed. And so they first tried to mock them, thinking that insults would stop the work. When that didn't, they resorted to violence. They threatened to bring an army in and kill people. And yet that didn't work either. This week, we're going to see something else attempt to stop the work. We're going to see something that's, in my opinion, even more insidious than the violent threats of Sanballat and Tobiah. What in the world could I possibly be talking about? Because I, I, I don't know about you, but I think if someone was threatening my life, I, I, I think that would be pretty bad. So what in the world could possibly be worse than that? The inside distractions. You see, when there's outside distractions, as, a, as big of a pain in the side as they are, sometimes they actually can end up motivating you. They could actually bring unity. I mean, last week we, we talked about how uh, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah tried mockery at first. Th think about a sports team. When their opponent is trash talking, they're mocking, they're insulting the sports team cuts the clippings out of the newspaper and puts them up in the locker room as motivation. It brings them all together so that they go, go out and do their best against their opponent. Or, last week we saw them attempt violence. Well, think about, if you're old enough, what was America like after 9-11? I mean, Al-Qaeda terrorists tried to disrupt America, and what they did was they created a unified America. I mean, even people who hated George W. Bush, the president at the time, still found themselves inspired when he stood out there on the rubble of the Twin Towers and he held a microphone inspiring the workers to keep going, to keep looking for bodies, and in the process, unified America. That's what we saw last week in Nehemiah 4. Sanballat and Tobiah tried to trash talk. It didn't work. So they tried to resort to violence and it didn't work. It unified the people, and they put their heart and mind to the task even more than before. But today, we're going to see that sometimes it isn't the outside things that are the problem. It's the stuff that can happen within, and how it's actually more insidious because it can actually fracture and break it from inside, and the entire foundation crumbles, and it all falls apart. 
So if you brought a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it up to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, we're going to put the scripture on the screen. But uh, if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to uh, pull that out. Salem, would you do me a favor? I forgot to bring my water bottle up. Um, but uh, if you uh, need to, just download a Bible to your phone. Thank you so much. Uh, or uh, if you want a paper copy, we've got translation, uh, two translations on our resource table. Please stop by uh, there and pick up a Bible, and we'd love to just make that our gift uh, to you. Uh, we're going to head into Nehemiah 5, and uh, I'm going to read aloud uh, verses 1 through 6. So Nehemiah 5, 1 through 6. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now, our flesh is the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Most Sundays when I preach, I use the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV uh, the reason I do so is I, I respect it because the translators uh, attempted what is known as a word-for-word -word approach. Now, you cannot do a true word-for-word -word approach in translating the Bible, just so you know. Right? If you tried to translate the Hebrew for Old Testament or, or Greek in the New Testament, it, the result would be almost unreadable. Right? But there's kind of two main approaches to Bible translation, word-for-word -word or thought-for-thought. -thought, right? We've got both back on our, our resource table. Right? A thought for thoughts like the New Living Translation. They try to say, okay, what are the thoughts being conveyed and how do we put that into English? But a word for word translation says, all right, what are the words that are here? Let us try and get as close to that as we possibly can. There's pros and cons to both approaches. For someone who does not know the Greek, I appreciate the word for word approach because it helps me a little bit more of knowing it's there as I use the thought for thought like as a commentary to help me out. One of the downsides of a more word for word approach is that it's a little harder to read. The reading level of the ESV is a little higher than, say, like an NIV or a New Living. So that means that occasionally I come across stuff that I'm like, what is this saying? And that's kind of what happened to me this week as I read verses 1 through 5. I, I, I knew the story well enough, but yet I kind of found myself pausing, like, wait, what is that saying? So if you found yourself not fully following along because the wording was just a little stilted, I gotcha, all right? Here's what's going on. Basically, the people are hungry. They, they need grain that they can then use to make bread. However, there does not appear to be enough grain. Now, some people don't have grain because they, they came with Nehemiah and they didn't have time to plant a field and wait for the entire cycle to happen and then harvest, right? They've just been there a few weeks. For some people, I, I, I suspect they don't have it because they've maybe moved into Jerusalem to help with this project and so they've left their fields and so they're able to get to it. But also, did you hear in verse 3, it said that there's a famine. All right, so this is a really bad season for farming. Like it, the, the land just isn't being able to produce enough. And so what's happening is those who actually have some grain are selling it at exorbitant prices. So high that it's causing people to have to mortgage their land 
their vineyards, their house. They're giving up key critical things just to get food. And then, if you can't pay it, these nobles, these rich people, are basically then taking their children as slaves. Can you imagine? But we live in America. Of course we can imagine. We live in a place where the rich get richer, often on the backs of the poor. For instance, payday loan places. The only people who need that are people who are living paycheck to paycheck, and they're not going to make it to the next paycheck. So they come in and they get a loan based on the next paycheck. And the, the, the interest rates on those are usually sky high. People are getting rich off the backs of the poor. That's exactly what's happening right here as we come into Nehemiah 5. And it absolutely makes Nehemiah furious. He's incensed. Why? Because they're exacting these uh, in high interest rates is breaking the law. Now, it doesn't break our law. Well, I think there are some laws saying you can't you know, go above certain amounts. But for the Jews, they operated off what is known as the Mosaic Law. God gave through the prophet Moses the law for the Jews to live by. And one of the rules was you cannot charge interest to a fellow Jew. Now, you could give them a loan, but when they repaid it back, if you loaned them $100, they'd give you back $100. You couldn't charge them extra on it. And yet, these guys are charging so much that they're actually then taking children as slaves. And, and so they're doing some of the very same behavior that caused the Babylonian exile in the first place. The Israelites had wandered away from God in their hearts. God kept warning them through prophets. Babylon finally came in as God, in a sense, sent them, brought them, defeated them in war, and brought them into exile. They lived in exile for 70 years, and now they're slowly being allowed to come back as Persia defeated Babylon, and Persia's allowing them to return. And now they're behaving just like their ancestors did a hundred some years earlier? So Nehemiah's so mad because he knows that if this continues, we're not going to see the destruction of our city because of Sanballat and Tobiah. We're going to see the destruction of our city because of the fracture within our nation. See, sometimes we fear the outside. We're so concerned about these things outside, and yet we probably should be more concerned about what's happening on the inside. My friend uh, Jeff planted a church. Well, he didn't plant the church. There was a church plant beginning in Thief River Falls, Minnesota, I think back in about 2006 or so, and they had about 20, maybe 30 people, and they decided to uh, affiliate, to associate with Converge, the, the organization that we are uh, affiliated with. So... They, they connect with Converge, and Converge says, all right, we'll send you a pastor. And the first pastor they send them is Jeff. Uh, by the way, Jeff later started Church Plant Solutions, which is uh, our book company, uh, bookkeeping company. This is how we have a relationship with Jeff. So Jeff comes in, and they need a place to meet. And so they end up with a gas station. They could only fit about 50, maybe 75 people in there. Before long, they're running two services, and they, they have no room, and, and so they need something else. And so they start looking, and when they're not able to find something to rent or lease, they start thinking, well, we're going to need to buy something. Well, every time they attempt to buy a building, 
the city council votes it down. Because the city council did not want to give up the potential tax revenue by having a church by that building. And so they kept telling them, no, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think Jeff told me that they got turned down five times. I think after the second, maybe third, I'd start to feel a little persecution. It's not true persecution, by the way, but that's how I'd feel. I'd feel like they're against us, and this could like kill us as a church, and everything's against us. And yet, despite these outside pressures, Epiphany Station continued to grow. They, they, they were at one point out of that gas station running five services, 50, 75 people at a time, packed house, five services on a Sunday. Eventually, they ended up buying a, a, a house that was right there next to the gas station. Uh, that became their offices. Then there was a bakery that, that ended up no one wanted, so they ended up buying that, and that became their church wing. Eventually, they tore all of it down. They met in the theater for a number of, of uh, weeks or months and built a building right on that spot because it's the only spot the city would let them have because no one else wanted it. Nowadays, they're running like 400 people. But that's what they went through. Everyone thought it would be the outside things that would kill off Epiphany Station. And instead, in the face of the pressure, the church just continued to grow. What would be far worse for Epiphany Station is if there was drama inside, if there was bitterness, if there was backstabbing, if there was gossip. That would have been far more dangerous than anything the city council could have done to them. Think about it. Would you want to be part of the worship team up here if Jake was simply using this to build his name and brand? He's not. He gives other people chances to lead. But if he just used these people for his own sake, do you think they'd want to be a part of it? Like, would you want to serve back in Kids Creek if Bridget just micromanaged every little thing you could do or say? Would you want to be a part of this if I took advantage of your kindness and generosity to build my own little empire? Would you want to be a part of, of this if there was nothing but a bunch of gossip going on? Would you want to be a part of Riverwood if one of the elders like publicly insulted you and shamed you and then made you feel as though it was your fault for it? How would you feel if you found out that 50% of the capital campaign money was going to be used for an all-expenses-paid trip for the elders and their spouses? You wouldn't want those sort of things happening in your workplace or your school, but especially not in your church. I would not want to be a part of a church that's like that. I would, I would be, I'd be out. Because that is not how the family of God is supposed to be. And Nehemiah knows this. He knows that the behaviors of the, the nobles, of these wealthy people, will stop, not only stop the work on the walls, it will kill the nation from the inside. And that's why we see him get so angry in verse 6. So out of his anger, he pulls them all together and he, he confronts them. Start in verse 7 with me. I took counsel with myself. By the way, that does not mean he went to a conference room and, and talked aloud. It means I thought these things through. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Uh, by the way, 
what, what he's saying is, unfortunately, in that day and age, slavery was very, very common. Sadly, it's also very, very common in our day and age. It's just outlawed in most places. Back then, it wasn't outlawed. So you couldn't pay off your debts. You often ended up in slavery. He's saying that their surrounding nations have bought up some of the Jews who had gone into debt to them. He's actually used his own money, some of the resources he got from the king, some of his own, to go and purchase them back to buy their freedom so that they could come and then help in the rebuilding of the wall and be reunited back with their Jewish people. He's going out and doing that. And yet some of these nobles and officials, these wealthy people, are actually taking fellow Jews in a sense, buying them as slaves and selling them back to Nehemiah just to continue to get richer. And he's pointing out this hypocrisy. All right, so uh, verse, uh, into verse 8 there. So they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Too often when uh, we get caught doing the wrong thing, our first response is to justify. Or, or we try to shift the blame. Or we, or we try to downplay it. Or, you know, well, in this case, it wasn't really wrong. Yeah, usually it is, but in this one particular instance. Like, we come up with all sorts of excuses. If you're a parent, you get to watch this daily. Thankfully, the nobles, the officials... The wealthy did not do that. When Nehemiah confronts them, they hear it. It pierces their hearts. It sears their conscience. And they realize, we have been wrong. I, I think there's three things that, that convict them. Number one, I think is that they realize we've been breaking the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Covenant says that they're not supposed to be exacting interest from their fellow Jews, but that's exactly what they've been doing. So they realize they're, they're wrong there. Uh, second, I, I think that the other thing is that they realize they're hurting their fellow Jews. I, I, they have been a fractured nation, and here they are trying to rebuild it. I mean, they've been in exile for how long? There's been this remnant back, and you've got Zerubbabel who's come back in, in the book of Ezra trying to rebuild some stuff, and then you've got Ezra coming, and he's trying to rebuild the faith. They're trying to get reestablished, and now these very behaviors are going to wreck it all. And I think there's a little bit of guilt. There's conviction. But I think the third thing that really convicts them is Nehemiah. I think they look at Nehemiah's life and realize he's doing the opposite of them. They've been trying to purchase or, or in a sense like get slaves and he's out there using his own resources to help free slaves. If we were to keep reading starting in verse 14, you see that, that Nehemiah would have this right to this king's allowance of food. He was not taking it. He was not demanding it. He was sharing it. We also see that as a governor, he would be allowed to exact certain taxes. Previous governors, it says that they were uh, taking a, a daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. 
I mean, there were, there were things that had to be paid for in the government. There would be, you know, like dignitaries that would come in and visit. He'd need to feed them and house them. Like, there were costs that were in the government. And yet, Nehemiah did not take this tax. Because, you see, he did not want to put any extra burden on the people. So he's not going to collect extra food. He's not going to take extra money. He's not going to acquire any land. He's letting them keep it all so that they are as free as they can be to help rebuild this wall and reestablish the nation of Israel. And I think these nobles see what he's doing and realize he's doing the opposite, and that brings conviction to their hearts. I don't know about you, but I want to live a kind of life that other people see and realize that's probably how I should live. So you, you begin to understand why Nehemiah gets so upset. He confronts them. But then, did you notice? He confronts them, he points out they're wrong, they feel this conviction, and they actually repent. Look there again at verse 12. Then they, these nobles, these wealthy officials, said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. You have to realize, they were just selling grain. They were selling food. Oh, you, you can't pay? All right, pay me with your vineyard. G give me your house. I'll, I'll, I'll take these things. But by returning the house, returning the children, returning the vineyard, by returning all this stuff, it's in a sense like they had given the grain away for free. And they got nothing. This cost these guys a lot. And yet they did it because it was the right thing to do. Because if they don't do it, they're going to kill their nation. They need to do this. And by doing it, it brings unity to the entire people. This theme of unity is not relegated to Nehemiah 5. It is seen throughout all of the scriptures. And we hear it over and over and over in the New Testament to the church. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, to lay aside their division. Certain people were saying, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulos, or I follow, you know, Cephas, Peter. And he's like, no, we follow Jesus. Be united. Set these divisions aside. We follow Christ. Or in Philippians chapter 4, he actually takes the time to address two different women, Judea and Syntyche, and basically says, agree in the Lord, find unity. Or how about in Ephesians, when he's writing to the entire church, he's saying, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, if you are a Jesus follower, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then live out your faith, how? With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This theme of unity is not found just in Paul's letters. This theme comes from Jesus. In Jesus' priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prays to God, let them, meaning his followers, let them be one just as we are one. Christ wanted us to be unified, so much so that in the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, he taught this. 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you think about it, that sounds opposite. That, that's like the opposite of what you'd expect. You would think it would be first come to God, give your worship to him, give your gift, and then go and be reconciled with your brother. But you see, to Jesus, your worship of God is affected by your relationship with your brothers and sisters. That's why when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he doesn't stop. He tacks on another. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He knows your worship of God is affected by your relationship with others. If you want to connect vertically, you have to be healthy horizontally. That is why set your gift aside, set aside your desires, set aside your reputation, set aside what you want to go and make it right. Because this is key. This is critical. Because if you don't deal with this, you could break it from the inside. We worry so much about the outside. They're telling us we have to wear masks. They're telling us not to. They tell us we have to have vaccines. They tell us we shouldn't do it. We got all this pressure coming in. And yet what's going to kill us faster is if we don't love one another. But if we love each other, if we are for one another, are so much better. I'm going to close with two things. We're going to head into communion soon. Before we get to communion, though, based on what Jesus says in, in uh, um, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, we, we're not Jews. We, we don't come to the altar. All right? The altar was the place of sacrifice. It's where you brought an animal to be sacrificed for your sins, or you brought a, a burnt offering. You know, you're, you're giving God your first fruits. We, we don't have that because Jesus went to the cross. So we no longer have to bring animals to be sacrificed. Jesus has paid it all. However, for us, our altar, if you will, is the communion table. It's at the communion table we remember the willing sacrifice of Jesus. And so, this week only, my encouragement is going to be, if you have some sort of issue with a follower of Jesus, don't come to this table today Instead, pull out your phone and send a text or send an email. If that person happens to be in this room, go to them. You may not be able to get it resolved right here and now, but perhaps you can say, can we meet this week? Because this is so key and critical. Oh, but Aaron, I don't, I don't think I could do that. Like that, That'll just be so awkward That'd be so hard. Yeah, it was really awkward and hard for those nobles in Nehemiah 5 to be confronted like that. It cost them a lot to give everything back. But they did it because it's the right thing. It cost Jesus his throne in heaven to come to earth. And then it cost him his very human life to die in our place. It cost him everything. So yeah, it may be awkward, it may be hard, this is going to cost you something. But you need to do it. But, but Aaron, you don't understand. I didn't do anything wrong. They're the one who did it wrong. They should be coming to me. 
you're right. However, if you're going to live like Jesus lived, he did nothing wrong to us. It was all on us towards him. And yet he still came for us. He took the first step. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to take the first step. Don't sit back waiting for them to come to you. You go to them. When I was in college, uh, my parents' church was really starting to go through a really, really difficult time. Uh, over the course of several months, a lot of people ended up leaving the church. But before the big mass exodus, my dad had been a part of the elder board, and the pastor was going to resign. And there were some people in the church who loved the pastor, and so they were like, why are you wanting to resign? And he said, I can't work with this elder board. So the elder board offered to step down. So my dad offered his resignation, as did the others, but then suddenly, the pastor brought two of the other elders back and said, this team I can work with. So, so now my, my dad's hurt, wondering, like, what, what have I done that made you feel like I was against you? And so my dad's really confused, and, and it starts all this gossip within the church, and this whole drama starts unfolding. Eventually, it got to the place, my parents are just like, this isn't healthy anymore, and, and they, they left. Well, years later, my parents are involved in another church. My dad's at work one day. And all of a sudden, the receptionist calls and says, hey, Larry, you got a phone call online too. My dad picks it up, and on the phone is that former pastor. Now, you have to realize that this is pre-internet and pre-cell phone days. And so this pastor did not have my parents' phone number anymore. All he could remember is the place of my dad's work. So he had to call information, get the phone number, then call and say, does Larry Bird still happen to work there? Well, yes, he does. May I please speak with him? And he patches through. Now, my dad clearly has told me the story in order for me to relay it to you, but I don't remember him telling me how he felt. I just know how I would have felt. I hate confrontation. I hate these kind of conversations. And so I'm sure if I had picked up that phone and on the other end is someone who had previously been really against me, I'd probably start getting nervous lump in my throat, stomach could start doing all sorts of things, my hand might start to get shake. I'd probably want to just do what I can to get out of the phone call, maybe hang up. I'm too nice, I probably wouldn't do that. But my dad stayed on the phone. And this pastor said, Larry, I was reading in the Bible this morning, and I think it was this passage out of Matthew 5, I don't remember exactly. It says, I'm reading in the scriptures, and as I'm praying, I suddenly sense God saying, you need to call Larry. And I just tried to justify, like, ah, I, 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 don't, I don't need to do that. I don't even live in Iowa anymore. I'm not in ministry any longer. You know, that's long in the past. And yet God's spirit would not let it go. So the pastor did the awkward thing of figuring out how to call my dad's workplace, getting in touch with him. And then he says, Larry, I just wanted to call and say I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the things I said. I'm sorry for the things I did. I'm sorry for the accusations I lobbed your way. Would you forgive me. My dad said in that moment, this weight just lifted off of him. This joy just filled him. And in tears, my dad's like, yes, of course I will. And there was this reconciliation. I want you to experience that. Now, I can't guarantee that's going to be your story. You might reach out and they might reject you. You might reach out and they might not apologize. But you can't have that opportunity unless you make that first step. And so that's why this morning, 
probably the first time ever, maybe the last in the life of Riverwood, I'm going to tell you, don't come to this communion table. Instead, pull out your phone, send a text, send an email, and get this cleared. For some of you, it's not someone within Riverwood. Riverwood has been a good place for you. For some of you, it's someone at a previous church. You may need to be calling, connecting with someone who you haven't seen in weeks, months, years. Some of you, it's someone that you live with. It might be a spouse. It could be your parent. It could be a kid. You're holding something inside. You've been keeping it quiet. Before you allow it to crumble and ruin that, go and talk. So let's do what we need to. In order to have this foundation, let's not let us rot from the inside. Let us be healthy and strong and, and vibrant, knowing that when we have strong relationships here, it helps us vertically. Now, last thing. We are in a capital campaign. What in the world does Nehemiah 5 and this whole conversation about unity have to do with raising money? Actually, it has a lot more than you think. You see, if you have a sense that you're not loved, you don't matter, there's bitterness in your heart towards someone, you're not going to want to contribute into this. But if you find what my dad experienced with his former pastor, you find that reconciliation, the repair has been made, it fills you with such joy you want to be a part of this. It makes you excited about what God is doing. You will want to give willingly and cheerfully and sacrificially into this. And because I believe that our best days are ahead, I want you to get to experience that. So for your sake, as well as the sake of Riverwood, will you seek to have those relationships strong and healthy? So do the hard thing. Go and talk to someone. Send them the text. Give them a call this week. Do what you need to that you can help prevent Satan getting that inroads and ruin it from the inside. So I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'm going to pray. And I realize that some of you, you're, you're, you're doing great. You're doing fine. You can't think of anyone right now. And so you're going to be able to come to this communion table. And when you do, I want you to just thank God for taking the first step, for coming for you and repairing the relationship through the cross. But if you don't come to this table today, it's totally fine. It is absolutely okay to pull out that phone and send that text, to send that email. If, if you can't do it right now, then put it on your to-do list. And don't let today get away without making that connection. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to take the time, and you can spend this next time during the song pray to make that contact you need to or go to the communion table so heavenly father we bow in prayer before you right now asking that you would give us courage that we would actually reach out to that person that hurt us or that we would reach out to that person that we know we hurt and we would seek to make amends we would seek reconciliation we would seek repair so that we might have this beautiful, incredible worship of you. So, Father, for the sake of your name, 
the sake of this church, for the sake of the global church, give us the courage to have these hard conversations. And God, I pray you'd be in the middle of the conversations, that your spirit would be present, that there would be forgiveness, there'd be reconciliation, and there'd be joy. So God, I pray you'd use this next moment as you need to. If you need to draw someone to these elements, that they would take them remembering what Christ has done for us. They need to pull out a phone that they would do and, and that you'd give them the words to say. God, use these next moments to help us. Help us not to just continue to ignore and avoid. Help us to be brave enough to be like Christ, to take that step and then watch you do what only you can do. And so Holy Spirit, do what you need to right now for your glory as well as for our joy.